0: The Armed Forces Radio Service invites you to share in the vivid, colorful stories, just between us. Stories is told by one of America's master yarn spinners, Knox Manning. This is Knox Manning with a few remarks just between us about a mystery of nature, a possible comeback, the princess of evil, a strange hoax, and a man to be proud of. Surging across Arctic desolation come the lemming legions. In their wake, They leave millions of their own dead, and a host of well-gorged arctic foxes, weasels, and birds of prey. In their two or three years' journey to the sea for mass harakiri by drowning, billions perish, but a multitude reaches the ocean, and as the first ranks die, multitudes behind them patter into the icy water and strike out for what might be a lemming Atlantis. The mass suicide of the lemming was until recently one of the major mysteries of nature. One explanation was that for years the continents were linked together, and as lemming populations increased in one or another area, mass migrations occurred. Then came the sea, accustomed to swimming lakes and rivers, and unable to appreciate the width of the salt water barrier, migrating millions plunged into the sea and perished. The second school of thought is that nature, having mistakenly rendered the lemming an over-prolific breeder, hit on the novel idea of preserving the species from famine by planting a suicide kink in its brain. These explanations are quite valueless. This does not explain why migration occurs every 12 years, or why one moving horde, despite millions lost on the long journey to the sea, increases numerically while another dwindles to nothing en route. No one could explain why billions of lemmings should suddenly commit mass harakiri when food was plentiful in their home areas or why they should usually set off in a westerly direction. Today we know one of the answers. It's summed up in the word vitamins. Scientists discovered that toward the end of every 12-year period, the rodents, usually timid, became quite fearless. At the same time, they produce larger families at shorter intervals. Arctic foxes, wolves, weasels, martens, reindeer, which eat the lemmings for the lichen in their stomachs, become almost as fearless as the lemmings themselves. And during this period, tens of thousands of swimming forms fight the currents and the banks are lined with foot-high piles of bodies. And all the while from the east come countless more millions pressing on toward the day of their suicide in the Atlantic Ocean. The march starts as though at a word of command. The mountain lemmings form into three columns about two feet apart, purposefully They head for the valleys where the woodland lemmings live. In a day or so, the columns fan out until they cover a front of about twenty miles. Millions perish in rivers as days run into weeks and months. Millions die through cannibalism, starvation, and the inroads of carnivorous animals and birds. With the winter, survivors burrow into the earth, and in spring again move on, always toward the west. Litter follows litter, and they increase steadily. Why, the investigators asked, should the rodent suddenly start to breed so prolifically? Close studies show that the lemmings undergo an amazing change immediately prior to swarming. Furthermore, with the new energy goes physical vitality that transforms a usually timid creature into a yellow-fanged fiend. Could the cause be a change of diet? What other reason could bring about an anatomical change in the whole animal and produce mass hysteria? It was surmised that the unknown invigorator was indestructible, and stored in the rodent's body could be passed to the animals and birds that ate them, creating vigor and fearlessness in even the most timid creatures. What could be the answer to this remarkable substance? Then vitamins were discovered. Certain of them were found to increase animal fertility, and the lichens were found to contain sex-stimulating vitamins And later, research proved that a certain hormone secretion in the anterior pituitary gland also stimulated the animals. Further field study filled in the whole fascinating picture. Year after year, the stimulant builds up in the lemmings, causing an increasing fertility and a marked vitality until the little animals throw off the last shred of timidness and set off to see the world and see it in a big way. But what about the lemmings that reach a haven on their way? How is it that they don't found new colonies? Research proved that the stimulant ultimately drains the animal of vitality unless the dosage continues. And few Arctic areas not already inhabited by lemmings contain lichen rich in the necessary vitamins. Thus, new colonies soon die off. But the cycle goes on. The time may come when there will no longer be any lemmings. But then who is to say? For instance, take the airplane propeller. With the coming of the jet engine, it seemed that the propeller was destined to become as obsolete as the dinosaur. But that was not to be. Aeronautical experts of both the Air Force and the Navy have become very interested in the development of supersonic propellers to be used on the high-speed aircraft of the future. In conjunction with this, one company has built a supersonic propeller spin pit. The pit is a steel cylinder measuring nearly 13 feet in diameter and is over 7 feet high. It's sunk below ground level and is secured with an airtight seal to a contact base. Then the huge chamber is made a near vacuum by removing 99% of the air. This reduced atmosphere permits the use of a low horsepower engine to rotate the propeller at a relatively high revolution per minute. Thus, by simulating, supersonic speed tests are conducted to test various types of propellers. And from tests already conducted, it appears that rather than being put in the discard, the propeller may continue to play an important part in the aircraft of the future. Well, from the future, let's go back a little, say about 3500 years. An Egyptian princess lived then, who has been credited with mysterious illnesses, accidents, death, and loss of money to people living in our times. Does that sound fantastic? Perhaps it is. This woman, according to catalogue number L22542 of the British Museum in London, was priestess of the Temple of Amen Ra. Her mummy was unearthed at the turn of the 20th century and that set off a chain of events which have all been credited to the malevolent influence of this woman. A few days after the discovery of the mummy of this priestess, a member of the expedition lost his arm in a mysterious gun explosion. A short time later, another member died unaccountably. A third was shot and killed under circumstances that were unexplained. Then, when the owner of the mummy, the man who financed the expedition, returned to England, he found that he'd been robbed of his entire fortune. You would think that would be that, as far as curious happenings to people connected with the mummy. But that was not to be. Upon its arrival in London, the mummy was sent to a photographer. A few hours later, this gentleman arrived at the owner's house in a state bordering collapse. It seemed he'd photographed the mummy, developed the plates, and made the prints. No other person had touched the equipment or had been in the studio at the time. Yet. The finished photograph showed not the shriveled features of a mummy, but instead the face of a living person, one with shining evil eyes. A few weeks later, the photographer died of an illness which defied diagnosis. The owner was terrified. He decided to get rid of this fearful thing, so he presented it to the British Museum. The man who delivered it died the following week. Rumors about the mummy began to spread. More and more people claimed that they'd been injured after merely looking at it. Premier Asquith, who was devoid of superstition, became curious about this phenomenon. He expressed a desire to see it, but his colleagues didn't share his interest. Well, by this time, the museum attendants were terrified. They demanded that the mummy be removed. The management hid the princess and substituted a clever imitation. But this deception was discovered by an American scientist. He offered to take the mummy to America and his offer was immediately accepted. A few days later, the crated mummy was placed aboard a ship bound for the United States. A few days at sea, and the evil-packed career of the 3,500-year-old princess ended at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, carrying with it passengers and crew. Oh, the name of the ship? The Titanic. Well since we were talking of London a few minutes ago, let me tell you one of the strangest hoaxes in history which was perpetrated in London. It had its inception at a gay Christmas party in the year 1748. The pompous Duke of Portland, having imbibed rather freely, contended that the average person will believe anything. His sceptical friend, the Earl of Chesterfield, didn't agree, so the Duke offered to wager a £1,000 to prove it. Said the Duke, let a man advertise the most impossible thing in the world, and there'll be fools enough in London to fill a playhouse and pay handsomely for the privilege of being there. Well, said the earl, surely if the man said that he would jump into a quart bottle, nobody'd believe it. Oh, yes, they would, said the duke, and so the bet was made. Early in January 1749, this curious advertisement appeared in a London newspaper. At the new theatre in the Haymarket, Monday next, the 16th instance, a person presents you with a common wine bottle which is placed on a table in the middle of the stage. The person goes into it and sings in it. During his stay in the bottle, any person may handle it and see plainly that it does not exceed the common tavern bottle. Well, London's response was amazing. It seems that everybody wanted to see a grown man enter a bottle. On the appointed night, the theater was mobbed. People fought for seats standing room sold at a premium. The spectators were literally hanging from the rafters. When the time arrived, nothing happened. The impatient audience hissed, catcalled, and what have you. Still, the curtain did not go up. At last, a man appeared on the stage amid cheers and applause. But the cheers and applause died down when the man announced that the performance would be called off, inasmuch as the person had not appeared. There was a sudden hush, and then bedlam broke loose, when the audience, frustrated in its desire to see a man perform the impossible, lost its collective temper and ripped up the carpets, the benches, the railings, and anything else they could get their hands on. The next day, the newspapers ran the story of the performance, which didn't come off, and the riot, which did. One of the newspapers went so far as to try to explain why the man did not make his appearance. They reported that he'd given a private performance for a certain gentleman who had simply corked the bottle on him. Thus, the article continued, being confined in a bottle and in a gentleman's pocket. Well, he couldn't very well be in another place. Well, maybe Barnum was right. You know, in my mail recently, I received a copy of an article which one of my listeners thought should be passed on to others. It's about a man, and there are many still living who remember him well. And this is the story they tell of him. He was a manly kind of man. He could ride hard and shoot straight, and he could handle trouble, though he never looked for it. When he laughed, he laughed all over. And when he got mad, he was mad all over. But he was never mad at the good people who tended peacefully to their business in life, doing the best they could, sharing the work and the fun. He was a tender kind of man. He was a friend of the weak, for he'd been a frail boy. He was a brother to the afflicted, for he had known affliction. But he knew that there was no handicap a man could not overcome if he tried, and he made us know it too, and he made us try. He was, shall we say, a first-name kind of man. So we let kings and rulers of the world stand in awe of him. To us, he was a neighbor who lived in the White House. And we were proud to have him there, where all could see what an American was like. For when he laughed, the world saw that we are a happy people. When he clasped the hands of the peaceful and upright, they knew that we are a friendly people. And when the steel came into his eyes and he stormed against the wrongdoers, the world understood that we can be a firm people when we need to be. He was a dreaming sort of man, too. We felt that he imagined nobly for his countrymen that he was proud of what we were and prouder still of what we could be and what he dreamed we became. He was a brave man, a kindly man, a jolly man, a stern man, a down-to-earth man. Yes, there was a man who made it feel good to be an American. There was a man named Teddy Roosevelt. Just between us, that's it for today. You've been listening to Knox Manning in another of his informal programs of storytelling. Each story or bit of information is just between us. So be at your radio the next time Mr. Manning calls your way. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education.